how to help run a public company. I helped run earning call sessions. And, and that really gave me the tool set to, and the confidence to say, hey, I could be a head of finance of a high growth tech company. What led you to leave Mongo? It has been a very successful IPO. I think the stock has done tremendously well. The company is doing very well. What led you to say, hey, now I'm ready to take the next step? You know, and it was not an easy decision because, uh, yes, Mongo was doing well and I left them at a time when it was going really well, right? The company is growing tremendously and it was a couple of years after the IPO and it was growing like a startup. So I would love to understand a little bit uh, on your move from, you know, that, that medical classes to joining the econ accounting classes. Was it really the first time that you were exposed to the world of finance? The theme for me uh, is I just love operations and how the numbers tie back to it, right? That's been the driving force in my career. The tech world is unbelievable because it's things that you wouldn't have imagined, you know, 15, 20 years ago, some of the tech that's coming out. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. We endeavor to unpack their journeys, to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. In today's episode, I'm excited to have Rakib Azad join us today. Rakib is a finance leader with over 20 years of experience with the last decade in high growth technology companies. Rakib headed the FPNA team in MongoDB, went public in 2017, then scaled a Web3 security startup, Chain Analysis, and is currently serving as CFO at Alkira, a cloud networking company. Throughout his career, Rakib has specialized in tying finance strategy to operations geared towards top and bottom line optimization. During his journey, he has mastered building teams, fundraising, system strategy, and working with C-suite on business transformation. He also enjoys advising startups. Let's end the wait and listen on to learn, grow, and inspire. Hi, Rakib. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast. Really great to have you on. Hi, Rohit. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Why don't we kick it off with a little background on you? Tell us how did you foray into this world of finance and became a CFO? Sure. I mean, I'll go back maybe back to my college days. Uh, now, my parents immigrated from Bangladesh uh, in the mid-70s, so I was born in New York. Uh, I thought I was going to be you know, a doctor, right? I, I think it's a pretty stereotypical kind of uh, thing and went to the University of Rochester and pre-med was just not really for me. Uh, I was struggling with some classes. I also you know, didn't like the sight of blood. <laughs> so, like, like, so, like, so it was something that I just like, hey, uh, I, I always was good at numbers, right? I I did great on the SATs and math, right? And uh, but I just wasn't exposed to business or anything like that, right? And as a as a kid, my dad was a dentist, and but I was like, okay, uh, you know, Rochester has a great economics finance program, uh, and I started in sophomore year, and now I was hooked from there. I did really well. I I, I did all my classes, graduated in time in four years. Graduated in two thousand one. Uh, I was thought I was going to go into high banking, like you know, you have that background. I did a lot of interviews. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, couldn't land a role. Uh, it was I got into a couple of advanced stage interviews, and I then I I'm like, what what should I do? I still didn't really know this world, right? I, because mm -hmm. I was like, hey, I, all I knew was what people talked about was, oh, I banking's great, and you learn a lot, and and you know, I could have a great career and make a lot of money, right? And so I had to go, you know, back to the drawing board and just get advice from you know, career centers and other folks, and then I was like, I 
realized, hey, companies need finance professionals. I, <laughs> I just actually didn't even realize that was a thing, to be honest, until I really looked into it. And it was, a, it was still tough sledding to find a job. And uh, what I ended up finding is a financial analyst role within a company called Footstar. And it's a, it was actually a two, one of those companies that are big, but you didn't, never heard about, it, right? It's a two, it was a $2 billion revenue business. They owned all the sh- uh, shoe uh, business in the Kmart. So if anyone, people who know Kmart doesn't exist anymore, uh, but it was a large discount store, uh, Walmart competitor. Uh, they ran the shoe stores there. They owned a couple of uh, sh- uh, shoe stores called uh, one called Foot Action, which is still around today, but owned by Foot Locker, which was a company I ended up working for. So I had this accidental finance career in retail, specifically sporting goods for a while. Uh, I branched out a little bit with consumer products. I actually went to the to the beauty world with Avon products uh, later and then a couple of uh, other interesting uh, roles. But th- those were interesting days. Uh, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I didn't want to leave. And I, these are New York-based companies. Uh, and you know, got to talk sports, learned a lot, but I, the, the, those were in large companies where I was siloed. I didn't see the whole three statements. I was doing a lot of PL forecasting. I was under the hood in, in the businesses, like for Full Locker, for example, I was uh, talking everything through what all the fixtures in our stores to the gross margins of our, our Nikes and, and everything. So it was an awesome experience, but it was me just putting together, doing some forecasting based on feedback and it was an, a lot of good grounding when it came to my, you know, my learning what how finance takes, but I wanted more. And I did work for, for a company called uh, Javianas, which is a Brazilian company, which creates the, you know, uh, those flip-flops. You know, they're pretty ubiquitous. But there was a startup uh, in North America you know, opening up the U.S. business, right? And I got to see the, all three statements, ran financial planning, operational planning. And that really said, like, yeah, this is this makes sense, right? And uh, but I still was, you know, thirsting for something different. And New York City at that time started to develop a, a tech uh, hub, really, right? It, it had a, a fit, some fits and start in the early two thousands, but in the mid two thousand tens, the tech world started to percolate in New York. And I was like, hey, what's going on here? And I decided to make a wholesale change. To go towards this tech world, so I started consulting for a couple of companies in the New York uh, tech scene. One was a company called Live Person, uh, which was a one of the few enterprise software companies in New York at, at the time that was of any substance, and got some great learnings there. and And then, yeah, I never looked back. I my first full time role was a company called Ladders. And it was a, a job recruiting uh, company, a job called recruiting tech. Uh, it was. You know, made, made a lot of noise in the you know early two thousands when it uh, started. LinkedIn came in, uh, you know, maybe disrupted it a little bit, but it was a great first role for me, heading the FPNA team, and that that was the role that I started learning what a front end engineer versus a back end engineer was, and how a real product team operates. You know, like you know the different types of way R and D uh, teams work with the agile, you know, Scrum and uh, all that good stuff. And to me, it was a world that got opened up. And uh, and I just continued to do my thing. I was a, a FP&A operator, uh, you know, really working hard with the folks and and understanding the business. But in a little bit of a twist uh, there, I was reporting into a COO. She was had a, a legal background, and she actually moved on back onto corporate legal America. And I got the head of finance nod during that role. And 
And lo and behold, this is a hundred person company, uh, had you know about three folks in the accounting team, one junior analyst, and now I own the finance function reporting into the CEO. Uh, and, and it was one that, you know, I, I wasn't striving for that. It just happened to be an opportunity I got. And that was the first time I had the comprehensive finance uh, leadership role. And this is around 2014, 2015 or so. And really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it was, all about, it was all about cash management there because it was a self-funded company, basically. It was a cash cow subscription product. And you're, we're kind of then taking little shots here and there in terms of uh, you know, what new products could bring more revenue. And it just didn't really work out, right? And so for me, I learned a ton uh, and I was thinking about it. Hey, uh, I'm starting to see some of these companies out there who are unicorns now <laughs> in the New York tech scene. And what I saw was a, a, a director of FP&A role uh, for MongoDB. And MongoDB was making, this is uh, yeah, late 2015, uh, MongoDB is starting to really get some traction from what I heard. <laughs> and uh, I was able to land that role. And that really was the transformational role for me. It's one where I you know, went back a little bit to head the FP&A team instead of being head of finance. Uh, that was a very conscious decision I made because I wanted to join a company that had, was a little bit more advanced in this product market fit and has a CFO in place I could learn from. And the CFO uh, at the time, and still is the CFO, is Michael Gordon, who had a totally different background than me. He was an investment banker by trade for 20 years, uh, had one CFO role under his belt before he joined MongoDB. And I was like, okay, this is a guy I can learn from. Uh, you know, MongoDB has great investors. And, and I think, hey, they have a technology that could actually advance database, right? So database, uh, you know, usually I don't want to get too technical and I'm not technical enough anyway, but relational databases where, you know, the, the databases are out there, the oracles of the world. And MongoDB was bringing a NoSQL unstructured uh, database to the, to the market. And they're unique because it's open source. And I was like, hey, MongoDB's uh, technology could open up big data applications or so mobile applications that need to serve up big data. MongoDB is there. And that's exactly how it unfolded. And during this time when I joined, MongoDB was uh, an on-prem uh, product, uh, but the genesis of Atlas, the cloud database, uh, came out in, in 2017, right before we went public. And uh, that's where I just learned a ton, helped scale a, a cloud-based uh, software business, uh, and we became public. And that gave me a skill set that I didn't have. I learned how to become a, a, how to help run a public company. I helped run earning call sessions. And, and that really gave me the tool set to, and the confidence to say, hey, I could be a head of finance of a high growth tech company. <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit, of, it's been quite a journey and that has put me into a couple of CFO type roles, right? Uh, I went on to a company called Sheen Analysis, uh, started as a series B, went to series F and now I'm a CFO of Galkira uh, three months in. And so, yeah, I'm more than happy to dive into a lot of that, uh, but it's it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting way, journey to get here. It's uh, I haven't seen too many people just go through the operational ranks uh, to become a, C a CFO, but it's one where, yeah, it was a unique journey for me that I, I truly enjoyed. I think certainly, um, I don't think there would be many uh, kind of medical students who have ultimately <laughs> became CFO. Uh, so I would love to understand a little bit uh, on your move from, you know, that, that medical classes to joining the econ accounting yes. classes. Was it really the first time that you were exposed to the world of finance and kind of before uh, yes. that you had never thought of it? 
yes, I, I didn't take any high school classes, uh, never had any exposure uh, in any way, right? Uh, all my all my friends, uh, you know, they were on the science path, to be honest, from high school. And, uh, you know, growing up, you know, I grew up with a lot of friends who were, who were parents from Bangladesh, and they were all in this, you know, the medical or pharmaceutical fields, right? So I had no exposure. And so for me, uh, it was something I had to find in myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of myself for making that move because I've known people who didn't make that move, right? And I've seen some people roughed it out, became, became doctors, and they, they're itching to become business people, right? So, uh, and, and be in finance or something else like that, right? And, and it was, it was a, my parents were very, uh, they were the type who were, you know, were encouraging after they, they wanted me to be happy, right? So I was lucky to have parents who were supportive, even though, you know, they obviously would love to have seen me become a doctor because that's just what it, how it is. Uh, but they're going to make you happy. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, you could have a good career doing it. I don't think they would have ever imagined, uh, you know, the success I've been able to have. And, you know, it is, if you do well in this, in this industry here, you know, it, it, it could be obviously lucrative, right? So, uh, it's something that sometimes, you know, these parents, uh, who came from, you know, uh, immigrated to this country don't know about that world. Right. And, uh, but for me, it was just a natural, uh, thing that happened and it was organic right it was one that uh, i wanted to go to something that i thought i was going to enjoy and i really enjoyed it right and yeah i did actually tinker with the idea of do i go into academia uh but i'm a more of a, a applied person i'm not i can't think it abstract really well right i'm a very extremely like give me show me something now I'll, I'll apply and i'm a doer right and uh, i love the the theme for me uh, is I just love operations and how the numbers tie back to it, right? That's been the driving force in, in my career. Super interesting. Um, I can totally relate to parents being very supportive, especially Asian parents being, you know, supremely yeah. supportive to whatever the kid want to do. Uh, especially I would imagine like once you have done your courses and you were looking for different kind of jobs and, you know, IB specifically, and you weren't able to land it, that must also be an interesting time where you know, what to do next once I've done this degree. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you know, my, you know, my personality is one where I don't uh, stress out too much. I, I try to keep even killed and I had to think logically, what, what can I do? I, I'm not the kind of person who bemoans, hey, this is happening to me and uh, will be me. I do say, hey, what is the next step I need to figure out to <laughs> keep this going? And so I've had, you know, parts of my career that's felt like I'm like on the, on the brink a little bit of what, what the next step is. And I just have to think, Hey, what is the best step for me that uh, could give me a fighting shot to create a great career. Right. And that's been a theme for me in the last 20 plus years. And, uh, but I, you know, I, that's something I I'm consider myself very resourceful and I had to do that. Right. I'm not, I'm not a natural entrepreneur. So starting a business wasn't uh, an option. So that's why we're like, Hey, I got, I'll, I'll do, I'll work at a shoe, shoe company right? <laughs> and, and do what I got to do. And eventually, uh, you know, I'll get to a place that I'm going to be happy. And like, uh, you know, with, for example, uh, chain analysis is software in the crypto blockchain world. And that crypto didn't exist uh, when I was in, in college. Right. It's uh, like, you never know where your career is going to go. It's, it's, and I, I love that. Right. I'm like the tech, not this being in the tech world is unbelievable because it's things that you just wouldn't have imagined, you know, 15, 20 years ago, some of the tech that's coming out and now I'm helping these companies become seminal companies. And it's, it's a great feeling. Well, we'll certainly dig a lot into Mongo uh, chain analysis and Alquira, but before that, I'm going to understand, the difference between projecting, you know, 100,000 shoe pairs being sold <laughs> yeah. versus 
you know, uh, yes. creating a financial model where the unit of measurement is perhaps, uh, you know, per gigabyte of pricing. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a different world, uh, for sure. It's physical goods versus, you know, digitally delivered software. And it's one where you th have to think in similar ways of crafting it, right? You want to, you have to understand what is that, that price demand uh, kind of equation, right? Based on, uh, you know, uh, the traction you're getting in the business, right? So with, with footwear, right, there's a lot of history. The, that's the big main difference, honestly. Here, like, I mean, Elkira, we're creating a, a category, right? And so for forecasting, it is much harder, but it's the same idea, right? You want to understand what the art of possible is based on where the, the market is right now. And then what can we do to invest to, you know, sell more, right? And, and do it in a way that's profitable or on, on the path to profitability, if you will, right? And so it's it just totally different context because in, in the shoe world, you're profitable, but barely, barely profitable. But it's, so it's all about the cost optimizations and, and while still selling what you need to sell to get <laughs> hit that profit margin. Here, uh, especially when you're in the, in the startup phase, uh, it's you're setting kind of, uh, different, uh, different, uh, ground rules and target points with every year. It evolves every year. And so, if, you know, it, it's hard to really make, uh, the direct connection, uh, other than the fact that you want to sell as much as you can while doing it sustainably. Are there any elements, uh, of the retail or physical goods financial planning that you would actually brought, uh, you would actually able to brought, uh, brought into the digital financial planning world? I mean, not necessarily directly. It's just thinking about the same way though, right? Because I, you want gross, your gross margins to be uh, as strong as possible. So what are the elements that contribute to cost of sales, right? So I'm having those conversations today. And so when it's in, a, in the shoe uh, uh, retail environment, you're, it's all about the physical cost of uh, acquiring the goods and, and, and keeping that lean, right? Negotiating power. Here is similar elements. So hosting expenses is a huge part of our COGS. There's a negotiation element where you're negotiating with the AWS Azure's of the world uh, on getting the best uh, pricing possible. There's way and there's you know there's uh, ways to keep the capacity down so we don't spend as much uh, on the cloud cost, right? And so the, the yeah the thinking is the same. It's just a completely different context. And uh, but the things that I learned back in my early days is just the, the grounding of finance and how to run a great PNL, right? And that is something I've taken with me my whole career. Uh, you have to be very disciplined uh, on that PNL, and that has given me like kind of that DNA for this world of efficient growth, if you will. Uh, and uh, I, it's been an interesting combination of experiences for me because I also grew up in the tech world of uh, spend to grow as well, right? And how do you combine that? And we're in that world right now, and so I really. Uh, you know, enjoyed my time in the retail world because it's it was just something where I brought discipline to the PNL and and now I'm being asked to bring discipline to the PNL in a startup right and it's giving me a lot of you know uh, interesting things to go back to look at and what I thought about that back then and how do I apply it today all right makes sense um, we'll certainly dig a lot into the uh, time at Mongo and the IPO. And kind of how you know how to really orchestrate that from an FP&A perspective, but before going into that, let's just finish kind of the uh, 
various moves that you have made from the Mongo mm-hmm. to chain analysis and then chain analysis to Alkira. What led you to leave Mongo? It has been a very successful IPO. I think the stock has done tremendously well. The company yes. is doing very well. What led you to say, hey, now I'm ready to take the next step and become sure. a CFO? And, you know, and it was not an easy decision because, uh, yes, Mongo was doing well and I left them at a time when it was going really well, right? The company is growing tremendously and it was a couple of years after the IPO and it was growing like a startup. And it was still exciting and felt you felt the energy every day. Uh, but personally, for me, uh, I was the FP&A uh, expert, right? And, you know, it's one where I wanted to be that head of finance again. And, you know, I, I could probably stick around for another five, 10 years and maybe not get that head of finance role. And honestly, building is what excites me, right? So I felt like the work I did with Mongo from the time I joined to the IPO and a few years after, there was a lot of building and the building was starting to uh, level off. Uh, I built a great team. They were doing great work for me. For me, uh, in the t- in the company, and I felt like, hey, I, I've, you know, I'm in a good place here. I've stabilized the the FP&A uh, team, and we are now contributing in all our facets. We created an unbelievable environment where we were, yeah, I wouldn't call it activists, but we were very proactive in in being partners to the business. And I was like, I'd love to bring that to a startup again, but this time as that at head of finance and and uh do it hopefully do it again right <laughs> and build a great company it was it was awesome to go through an ipo uh you know unbelievable feeling to be on the floor of the nasdaq but i think what really gets me ticking is just building a great business and that's what really prompted me to find uh, a company where i was like hey this could be fun and that has a chance to be a great company and chain analysis happened just being uh something uh, it was an inbound uh opportunity that came to me i was not a crypto guy per se. I owned a couple coins on crypto uh, on Coinbase, uh, but it was one where I was like, "Hey, chain analysis is trying to solve what could be a tremendous issue because like crypto is human progress, and they're bringing security, compliance, and analytics to this world, and they're well ahead in this nascent field. And this is before the crypto bull run in twenty twenty. Great investors, Benchmark Excel, backed them, and I was like, "Okay, uh, I got along with the founders and." Uh, I think this could be interesting. Uh, that was that was really it. Uh, and uh, I decided to make the move. Some people in Mongo were like, hey, you're leaving us for a crypto company. And I was like, no, it's a software company. Uh, it, I think it could be it could be great. Uh, and, you know, I think people respected the decision. I spoke to the CEO at Mongo about the decision and everything. And he's like, hey, you got to go with your gut. And it was, uh, yeah, I would never have guessed the the, the journey, the chain analysis uh, that I would have got, went through for in three and a half years. We I joined 120 people, uh, not uh, you know not too much cash in the bank at the time actually. <laughs> and uh, Michael Groninger and I uh, we hit it off really great. Where I was, you know, I really believed in the mission, and and we made some critical investments that year one, even before the bull run, because I was like, hey, I learned my lessons from Mongo that uh, yeah, we got to invest. Uh, and so, so you know, it, you know, I'm more than happy to dive in deeper into that role, but uh, I could also jump into my the next move. Uh, up to you, how you want to. Yeah, I would love to hear uh, what kind of investments are you referring to and yes. why did you feel right now, like what are the elements that you saw in Mongo and said, okay, these are the same kind of, you know, leading indicators that I'm right. seeing here in chain analysis that should warrant a good investment at this point in time. Great, great. and I think with chain analysis and now with Alcura in Mongo, these are picks and shovels companies, right? And 
they are there regardless of where the you know the world is going so, right they're building the infrastructure required to run great other great software channels is allowing for the ability to us you know the tra tracing of the movement of, of bitcoin and other crypto and understand where bad actors are there and the, this is uh, you know, building the, the you know, this, planting the seeds for, you know, compliance and security that, you know, will be required. And, and so that's what really, uh, what I saw. And, you know, it's good to see there, you know, there's some smart money in there, right? That helped me <laughs> be more confident about it. But uh, I saw it personally with Michael and Jonathan, uh, the co-founders, uh, their conviction, right, of where the world's going and how chain analysis plays a role. So that, that gave me the confidence. And uh, so that's been kind of the way I, I see things when I evaluate opportunities. Like, is this a company that is, you know, helping build infrastructure for the new world, if you will, right? Uh, that's been the theme for my, my move, my recent moves. Uh, and so it's served me well so far. And, uh, you know, chain analysis is doing really well and uh, approaching, you know, $200 million in ARR, right? It's, it's one where, uh, yeah, I, I'm proud I've helped build a, a company that, you know, is now in the, you know, the, the Forbes Cloud 100 and yeah, CNBC disruptors. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a good feeling, right? And, uh, and so I'm hoping to do that again with Alkira. You said when you joined Chain Analysis, there wasn't very much cash in the bank left. And so I would imagine as soon as you joined, you had to hit the road for fundraising. Exactly. And we did do just an extension of the Series B because this now, mind you, uh, this is... 2020 COVID hit, right? And everyone thought the world's going to fall apart. And uh, we wanted to get some cash in the bank. Uh, and we did do uh, a raise, a modest raise. Uh, we brought in a great investor, Ribbit, uh, at that stage. Uh, but it gave us a little bit more confidence, right, to make some bets. And, uh, you know, we hired some go-to-market uh, resources, right? So that's where I pay a lot of attention to the go-to-market org and how that needs to evolve. And knowing you know, the, what Chainalysis, the business is, it's a global play, right? And do we have the you know, coverage around the world required to hit, you know, hit the ground and, and, and sell? And so that's why we made some, uh, some bets there that in 2020. And this is before, again, that, that bull run that happened. And uh, I, I was also saying, hey, GNA and R&D, you, you got to look at those. What are critical roles to make sure we hit the product roadmap? Uh, delivery, right? So I worked with the head of engineering to ensure that, like, at least can we hire the most critical folks? And then I had to bring in a few key people, right? And uh, I kept it fairly lean. Uh, and when I joined, we were in the 20 million ARR uh, range. And uh, I built a small team of five folks that we took all the way to 50 million plus. And, but you have to hire really good people, right? Uh, and so for me, uh, those those investments we made were pivotal to get us ready for this bull, that bull run that happened, right? And yeah, we, we would never known that like the stimulus checks that are <laughs> being uh, written out uh, prompted this like you know Main Street crypto uh, uh, you know bull run, and it was great for chain analysis because uh, you know we were providing you know compliance products for pri private companies uh, like a like a block, right? And uh, while also selling our solutions to the public uh, sector, right, to the to the FBIs of the world. And, and so we were ready as, a, you know, we, since we made those investments, we were ready to meet the moment. And that became a virtuous cycle of just a lot of fundraising. And, you know, we end up raising $470 million in a span of 18 months. <laughs> and we, we did take advantage of the, the environment and, you know, the environment's quite different today. Uh, but, you know, 
one experience I did not have until Chainalysis was that investor uh, relations uh, kind of uh, uh, experience, right? And I met over 100 investors in my time there, and I, I loved it. I loved li- meeting different investors with different theses, uh, how they thought about the world, and I learned a lot. And now, you know, I have you know, folks I could, you know, reach out to uh, at any given time and, you know, and, and catch up and, and talk about the state of the world, which is quite different <laughs> today when it comes to uh, venture funding. But, yeah, it is what it is. Very cool. Now let's talk about your move to Alcura. What led you to then move on from chain analysis, which is certainly continuing yes. to do very well, to another exciting company? Yes. I, you know, I think now the theme is, and I already alluded to this, I didn't have to go, had to get to the IPO stage. Uh uh, to feel like this is a job well done. I helped build a tremendous team. My team ended up is around, was around 30 plus people by the time I left. Uh, and it was one where, yeah, really great folks in the team who could <laughs> run the business. And uh, we got to a point where now it's like, hey, you're starting to build those little things to get ready to become a public company. And the build, you know, a lot of the interesting build parts were, were done, right? In, in the rearview mirror. And, you know, I think with the IPO market also being, you know, on the downside right now, it was hard to see what the horizon looked like in terms of that timing as well. And so for me, I was like, hey, what would I rather do? Uh, you know, do this where I'm starting to just you know, tinker and make sure the company's in a, in a great health or can I build another great company? <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's quite frankly uh, the question I asked myself. And I felt like you know, I gave it my all here. Uh, three and a half years in, and uh, I'd love to do it again. Uh, and so I you know, networked with some VC talent arms and uh, the Kleiner Perkins team introduced me to Alkira. And when I, and I met a lot, a decent amount of companies in this past year, to be honest, right? Uh, just to just meet and greet. And uh, I really hit it off with the team, but it was a mutual interest because this is infrastructure SaaS play, right? It's It's creating, for me, it's taking... Uh, an established technology and bringing it to the new world, right? It's a, and it's it's we're delivering a networking solution via the public cloud. And this harkens back to my MongoDB days. We were the first database in the world to deliver a database via the public cloud, right? And this is Alkira is the first company in the world to deliver a turnkey end-to-end solution via the pub, public cloud. And uh, and for me, it made a lot of sense. <laughs> it just it made, made too much sense for me not to take it right so, so it's, it's like it, it's so yeah here i am and uh you know I'm, I'm very excited right because i think we have uh, potential to you know build a seminal company very cool so you have been now to three different infrastructure software companies yes um why don't we maybe spend a few minutes just riffing about that space in general it certainly okay. seems like um uh, something that is much more mission critical uh, and in this kind of an environment where many of the apps are being cut, certainly people can't just cut out infra software. Exactly. So in your experience, as you have seen at least the last, I would say, you know, seven, eight years of journey in infra software, can you give maybe your three big takeaways on the space very broadly? And then maybe we pick a few uh, specific items that we, that we would dig into. Sure. I mean, the, in the new age infrastructure software companies, it's that all about that uh, consumption delivery, right? And uh, especially now via the, via the cloud when it makes sense, right? And uh, it's a classic land and expand. So it, where you land the logo, but the usage dictates where the, the customer ends up going, right? And 
So it's a win-win, I think, for, for both sides because the customer uses what they need. And for, for uh, the software company, uh, you know, they're able to you know, land you know, different types of use cases, right? So uh, for Mongo and Alcura particularly, it's different use cases using our technology. And so you can land on one use case and get that land in and then boom, you're in. And then you have a infrastructure behind you with sales folks and customer success and social engineers to make sure you succeed in that use case. And then other use cases could come on organically. Sometimes you could land multiple use cases right off the bat, right? So uh, it's one where it just it just makes sense, right? In terms of how to go to market and uh, how it fits the needs of a customer. Uh, with the yeah, and it's very sticky, and so that's another you know uh, kind of thing I'm seeing. It's very sticky because it becomes. It's a hard buy at first because you're sometimes it is transformational, right? Your database is a very tough transformation. Networking transformation is very tough. So the local land is tough. So that's been a theme I'm seeing, but then it, the, the economics are tremendous. So it's a high cost to acquire, but the LTV gets delivered in, in, in spades once you, you you have the right solution. So that's that's really been the thematic uh, kind of things I've been seeing that just shows you know the strength of a business when you hit that product market fit, right? That's obviously <laughs> the first first key point, and yeah, and I think it's uh, it becomes a now uh, so sticky that it's all about just making sure the customers you know satisfied and you're ensuring that right. So there's some costs that need to go in to ensure that ongoing satisfaction. Uh, but, uh, it just, uh, once you have the primary fit, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great business to be in. Hey, um, so that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we dig a little bit into the pricing side of intra software? Um, maybe start with if there are any significant similarities mm -hmm. or differences that you have seen across these three companies. Sure. Uh, you know, all have usage based components to it, right? So it's one where. Uh, we're delivering and you measure it by the units delivered in Mongo and Alcura's uh, uh, situations. They're both like, you know, data that's being transmitted, right? You're still charging uh, from a, a gigabyte perspective, right? And with, uh, you know, Alcura, there's, you know, there's sizing too. There's like t-shirt sizing with the gigabytes being moved over exchange points, if you will, right? And it's one where uh, consumption-based pricing is accepted by a lot of customers, but in both, in both cases, Mongo and Alcura, some customers want the certainty. So there was times where we had to come up with the fixed pricing commensurate to uh, how we think the consumption uh, is going to play out, right? And so we're going through that right now at Alcura. It is a little challenge where we do have customers who are pay-as-you-go. You have customers who are consumption commit. So they commit to a certain amount of consumption. So we have certainty on both sides and what we're going to get. And then we also have a fixed model where we're just giving a fixed price. And right now, that that obviously made me nervous as a finance leader, and I had to dive in. And right now, it, it's you know it seems like it's a, it's a profitable business. And we got to make sure that's the case, all right. And that's where the pricing becomes key, right? Because we got to look at the cost components, how the customers are using our product, and then build a, a pricing that, that that makes sense, whether it be consumption are we, we converted to a fixed price and we do want to be very flexible when it comes to our customers uh, and what they want and so that's something it's going to be the one of the bigger challenges uh, that i'll undertake here at alkira uh, but you know when it comes to pricing power it should be no different than any software company where you know there's obviously things like inflation happening and you have to uh, the more sticky our product gets and more uh, market share we have 
you have pricing power that gets built, right? So I was able to see that in Mongo and a little bit in chain analysis. Chain analysis, we uh, built it. Uh, we have a, a compliance product that was transaction based. So every time a, a you know a crypto transaction is made, uh, they, they look at our software to see, hey, is this a red flag uh, associated to this this crypto uh, and and uh, so we built a model around that, and it was a tiered pricing. So if you get to a certain amount of volume, you get you unlock uh, discounting, right? And so that became that model where the more you, you use the, the software, the better pricing you get on a unit economic uh, basis, and it becomes a win-win uh, where you know we're getting more volume. And there, I instituted the ability to you know upgrade to a new tier where you commit to the dollars, and then you get even better. Uh, uh, pricing, right? So it's one where we did a little bit of that in MongoDB as well, because at the end of the day, you also want some certainty while giving your your uh, customers flexibility. So that's the theme: is how do you uh, traverse that, right? Because I, I as a prof- finance leader, want that ARR certainty, uh, but I want my cu- customers to be happy as well, right? And so there are permutations you got to look at. Uh, to to get to a good place, and something, and so sometimes it's great when a customer says, hey, "I need certainty on my on my uh, expenses because they're that for them it's an opex, for me it's ARR, and we can meet together on a model that makes sense." But we do have you know like the the, the unit uh, kind of pricing of you know by gigabyte is like the, the building blocks, right? And then you kind of have to uh, build it in a way that just that makes sense for the company and for the customer. I'm sure you like. Uh... Kind of this uh, the predictability of the ARR, uh, but I'm 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 pretty sure that your salespeople yes. would love that even more. <laughs> I'm curious to understand how do you incentivize sales yes. in this kind of a model where they may not know if the ARR that they're getting from this customer is going to be a million or mm-hmm. half a million or five million. Sure, and yeah, that's a hot topic right now uh, as we go into the next year and for. You know, for the pay as you go, right? So some customers want pay as you go. I am uh, talking through with our, you know, head of sales and CEO that let's measure every quarter for the first year, right? Uh, and so month three, what is the annualized number? And it's an interesting one, right? Because it'll keep an executive tied to the business, whether it's good or bad, right? Because one of the things we're going to do is if it dips below the previous quarter, it might go against your quota attainment, for example, right? So you, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, kind of uh, uh, thing to analyze as, as as time goes, but I am open to doing that. that we, ha- we don't have this in place right now. So like every quarter, let's see what that annualized num- revenue looks like. And I'm willing to pay on the on the spread. Uh, and that will, yeah, I think that that should work well mutually. And then you will see if the if the salespeople rather have you know do the fixed pricing and get that you know that uh, check uh, the front end. I'll be happy as long as we build profitable deals uh, to do that. Go do that right. So we want to set up a commission plan that is you know uh, fair, but one that uh, guides towards the best outcomes. Which is like I want yeah I want more certainty. So I want the customers to have flexibility. So consumption commit, for example, is, is a great one, right? Because you have that commitment in place uh, and you know the dollars are going to come in and let the customer use as they please during that year. But it's a user to lose it, right? Because then you have revenue recognition issues if you're uh, letting them roll over after the year, right? So that's one of those things I've I've already made sure people are aware, like you rolling over uh, the commitment is not going to work. Uh, right. And so it's like, how do we just make sure we have the guardrails in place? 
At your time at Chain Analysis, were there any specific traits that you were able to pick which worked very well in your team versus that didn't go so well for whatever reason? So I like to have a diversity of thought and experiences and even personalities. So I'll, I'll be honest, like there's certain roles, I there's certain traits I look for, but then there's other roles that, that don't require those traits. So I'm not looking for the same trait throughout the finance org. Uh, but so somebody who's on the FP&A team, they have to be able to talk to stakeholders, right? I mean, and, and have meaningful uh, strategic conversations. You can't just be technically proficient and, and be successful FP&A person, for example. Uh, but accounting, you know, the best accountants, I do think, have that same quality uh, to be, I mean, but you could be a really great accountant and just be technical. And that's that fits the need, right, of the, the team. And I'm fine with that because we need it, right? And so I, I'm open-minded. Uh, to, you know, when it comes to the folks we bring in. And but if uh, there's a misfit in terms of what I'm expecting from that role versus, uh, you know, what they're bringing, uh, yeah, then you, know, I, you have to think about change. Uh, I, I don't like to get there. So that's why I, I do put a lot of emphasis in the, you know, the, that fit aspect in, in the interviews. But, you know, I love to have a, a well-rounded team because I think that's, you get the best work uh, from the, some of the parts who are really different, uh, right? And if you had a bunch of folks who just had the same traits, then you actually may not get the the results that you thought you were going to get. Uh, at least that's that's been my uh, viewpoint in, in these past uh, five plus years when I've been building these teams. You, of course, are based out of New York and uh, all kinds of talent yes. are available in the city, I would imagine. When you actually go and build a team, do you specifically want to solve for diversity? or it happens naturally if you're looking yeah. for the right kind of traits? Well, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, it's one where it you want to hire the best people. And New York does uh, lean uh, towards naturally building a very diverse team. So I've been, so uh, Chainalysis and DeMongDB, my team's been incredibly diverse on the, you know, the classic measures, if you will. Uh, but it's some of it, it was just the, you, you know, just, it just happened to be <laughs> like, right. And then you're not like overly uh, chasing that. Right. And, uh, but yeah, I, I do, when it comes to pipeline creation uh, for candidates, if there's no females on the, the, the pipeline, I'm like, hey, I, what, what's going on here, right? Because I do want to make sure we have a healthy, uh, uh, you know, a funnel that's bringing folks from all backgrounds. Uh, and then you really you want to pick, uh, pick the best person for the for the role. Uh, but if you take that approach where you are encouraging some uh, effort to bring in a wide uh uh, you know, a pipeline, uh, it naturally then becomes a, a diverse team. Uh, and so, so that's, it's, that's something that I do think is important. Uh, but, you know, for me, the diversity goes beyond your classic measures, right? It's, it's, it's like, Hey, even how you grew up, you know, different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, I think is interesting. Right. And, and, and so it's one where uh, people learn from each other and respect differences and, and you embrace the differences and that creates, I think, a bond, that uh, is better than when you have folks maybe coming from the same background, right? And so uh, that's something I, I take pride in and when building teams. Uh, so something, you know, I, I'm going to continue to do, right? And making sure that we we are, you know, uh, interviewing folks that uh, could may not look traditional on paper, but could end up being a great employee. And, and you just give them the same shot as everyone, and then you, you'll see how, how it turns out. Makes sense. You talked about few of the roles that only make sense when you are approaching an IPO. Mm -hmm. When should the company really make that kind of investment in advance of an IPO? Is it 
a year in advance, couple year in advance, maybe six yeah. months in advance? How much time yeah, do you want to give them at at the company? Yeah, and you have to almost create a, a matrix of uh, the roles you need versus uh, maybe a horizon to an exit. And so, for example, what are the roles that are you know you don't need really in the early days? but helps you become a mature, better, a better company, regardless of you going IPO or not. Right. And you kind of, and that's that next layer of like, this is just helps us scale and build a great company. We still don't know if it's an IPO, are we are going to exit if you just stay private, but like how to build a great company. And you kind of look at that and that's where you start building in that business partnership fp uh, So you have folks who are dedicated to R&D or folks dedicated to, to uh, you know, uh, sales. And then you're building, you know, muscles there to just really take it to the next level. Then same thing in accounting, you, there's levels of folks you just you need to hire just to scale the company. So that's that first tranche. And that, you know, uh, if you uh, look back to my MongoDB experience, uh, that already starts happening. You know, like we went public less than two years uh, you know, before, after I joined. Uh, you're already doing that when I joined, right? You have to start because we made, I think the board gave the, the go ahead to the management to push towards an IPO by late 2017. And so I just joined and we were already thinking about that while having a lot of startup uh, startup pains. Uh, but if you're able to do it in a way that's more systematic, uh, uh, I would say you start hiring this next tranche three, three years ahead of even uh, uh, IPO, right? So then when you get to, you know, hey, the decision's made that we are definitely on that IPO path, but we're still two years out, you start bringing in like that that level of technical uh, help, right? Like that technical accounting leader, not necessarily the SEC expert, right? But the person who understands like, hey, you get the quarterization, uh, helps us pass a you know, PCAOB audit, right? Like that, that's where you, you start doing that two years ahead, right? And so you bring that next uh, tranche of folks who are now like, hey, this is the precursor elements. And then, yeah, it's one year uh, and less is when you bring that internal audit, the SEC folks, uh, think about that head of IR if you think it makes sense, right? Based on you know, your current setup, right? Because sometimes you even get by just having great third-party IR, right? For example, so but, the, but that's when the six months of the year is when you bring that last group uh, who are really truly specific uh, to being a, a public uh, company, and you know you you know everything everything checks out from a, a metrics perspective, right? In MongoDB, we were uh, looking at all types of metrics to help us ensure that yeah, yes, it makes sense for us to go IPO. And then you start thinking about hiring uh, those folks, right? Because you, you know, what if you just you know pull that thing, and and then you have folks who are uh, idle for another you know six months, a year, or, or even longer, right? And so you want to make sure that timing is pretty pretty rock solid uh, when you bring that last group in. Makes sense. Let's talk about systems and processes as well, right? We've talked about people. When is the right time to bring in? you know, more automation, more systems, more processes. Uh, you know, you've worked at, again, three sort of relatively early stage uh, companies and kind of scale them. What have you seen? What is your yeah, sort of yeah, the gold standard from your perspective? Yeah, exactly. And it's never too early, so in my opinion. So I, yeah, I am right now doing a lot of due diligence on systems and processes, and I, I'm building a roadmap on what the right permutation is of different uh, things to bring into for automation. And you know, you start at the, the basics, right? We do have NetSuite and Salesforce in place, but they're not connected together right now, right? So that that is one of the first things I'll be attacking. And that was the first thing I did in Chain Analysis. Uh, so I was lucky, 
this is a great time to join where you have the big guys already in Salesforce and S-Suite because those are the ones that I, I that's one of the few that I agree that should be in and there's no questions asked right now. And now it's a connectivity and running your processes, right? Your order to cash and your kind of like in other things that, you know, in terms of uh, building that interconnectivity when you have data coming from Salesforce into NetSuite. So that's something we're attacking uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we're, I'm already working with the team on getting that in place. Uh, and, you know, we're in a world where with the SaaS consumption billing, there are new tools out there uh, that are helping automate that in a, in a way that uh, isn't there in the current uh, stack. And so those are things you have to do because it's, uh, it, it, for me, like if you have leaky uh, buckets, you're gonna you're not gonna have cash conversion cycle at the place where you need to be where cash is king. So you gotta start bringing in the process systems uh, ASAP. Uh, this is the time we're global. We're gonna be a global company. We're gonna be selling everywhere. So I want a, tra a robust travel and expense platform, right? Uh, and so be, be bring your own travel is gonna be obsolete pretty soon, uh, right? And uh, so I'm looking at every process procurement P2P. There's a lot of tools out there right now, and I want to bring in a light, robust uh, process on the front end uh, because I don't want to be overly bureaucratic here. But we're running a, a procurement process where the back end is. Is has the guardrails that we could pass an audit with uh, that we are getting doing the right things right and so that's uh, so I'm enjoying right now actually doing just meeting a lot of software companies some I've heard of some are were new and uh, and I'm going to see I'm going to try to stack up processes and systems that are automated uh, wherever I can uh, again without being uh, intrusive to the business right that's that's like I'm very mindful to that and uh, you know there's been some missteps in uh, I've seen the past with when it comes to that, right? And I want to avoid making those errors where you know our employees are like, "Hey, this is creating work for me," uh, right? You want processes and automations that actually make people's lives easier while also building the back end uh, guardrails and, and compliance that are required. And I, I'd love to get that stuff you know, completely in a great place this next this next twelve months. Uh, when I talk, when I'm say, saying all that stuff, I'm talking about the, the core, the OTC, the P2P, the FP&A tool, right? And 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 we have a game plan where where every major uh, process is, is systematized uh, with with the best tools. It's interesting when you said that uh, both at Chain Analysis and Elkira, you have found Salesforce and NetSuite already present. Yes. Ten years back, when I used to do banking in in the Valley. NetSuite, people would only start thinking about making that investment once they are past 50, 60 million in yes. revenue, right? Yes. And so just having that dramatic change where now people are deploying that way early in the cycle, yes. it's like that, that just talks about the maturity of some of these companies and how they think about scaling. No, no exactly. And then so it makes, I think, everyone's lives e easier, right, For the, on the scaling perspective. So right now it's all about then optimizations on these tools because they're very powerful tools, but they need customizations to the business. And so that's where we are right now, because it, then it's a, it's a, it's a lost investment if you're not starting to customize to your specifics of your business. And then your, what does that ecosystem around NetSuite and Salesforce also look like? And, you know, there's going to be on the sales analytics front, we're talking, you know, something like a Clary, right. And then, uh, you know, so that could help turbocharge insights into the, you know, the pipeline of the business. And, you know, we've had, success using that in past uh, my past experiences. And then uh, I also want to see uh, from an FP&A perspective, there's old guard, but what's the new guard doing and what what can it solve some of the issues I've seen in the past that haven't been solved, right? And so th that's where, once you have the foundation and you can start thinking about these things. So that's why I was 
thrilled that we had that because I could now actually think about the, that next stage. Uh, and, you know, and it's and the connectivity tools uh, are much better today, right? And like the Borcados of the world versus in the back, back in the end, back in the day, you needed a, a full engineering resource to do APIs, right? Now you have uh, APIs that could be created pretty uh, robustly just using a, uh, I mean, I could potentially learn like the, the formulas, right? To, to disconnect the, the system. So, uh, come a long way in that uh, world. And so that allows you to turbocharge that, that foundational uh, process design and, and, and automating things. Very cool. Let's talk about uh, your time at Mongo and sort of from an FP&A perspective, how to really go through the process of an IPO. Mm -hmm. You can dumb it down and be very <laughs> tactical in terms of this is step yes. A, this is step B. It's more like a masterclass in terms of FPNA, uh, in terms of like going through an IPO from an FPNA standpoint. Sure. Yeah. From an FPNA perspective, you, we have a unique seat in there because we're both actually in the back end working with the accounting team on like just the nuts and bolts where it comes to variance analysis because you're supposed to, you know, obviously have your Q quarter over quarter, your year variances that are, you know, then, uh, produced in your reporting. So that's like setting that infrastructure and working with the, the accounting team was a big workflow, right? In terms of, uh, we're actually educating the accounting team a lot on the variances. They eventually actually take over the the verbiage that goes with the, the variances. And so that was a lot of handholding to be quite honest on like, because they, a lot of times uh, the accounting folks are closing the books. They don't actually see what's going to happen, the underlying drivers. And so that was a lot of that work that happened behind the scenes where we, I'm sitting with that, with accounting and going over the variances and uh, yeah, you, uh, e is up because, uh, you know, this, we hired X many people now in, internationally and e is up, right. And we're going uh, line by line. So that, that's just infrastructure building and, and education happening behind the scenes. Then we had the a front end uh, seat where we're helping with the company deck, right. Uh, and because a lot of this is analytics, uh, SAS metrics and, and so we are helping build the company deck, the roadshow deck. Uh, and so that's another area. But I had a unique uh, part of the uh, you know, uh, process where the CFO tasked me to own our kind of red, yellow, green sheet versus when looking at different areas, whether governance, systems, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, board, I mean, uh, board composition and everything like, um, and we're kind of looking through Hey, where are we? Are we? Yeah, are we yellow because we have X, Y, Z done? We still need to do this, and and we reviewed it every two weeks. That's the, the CFO leadership, right? And so I got to have a finger on the pulse, uh, working on that, right? And uh, and allowed me to, you know, work with different folks throughout the org. And so, for example, systems. That's one area. Is like what's uh, in scope or not, right? Within terms of producing data that will go on to your S one and Q uh, Q reporting. Uh, what should be in scope? What should we take out of scope, right? And so the, these are just really nuts and bolts stuff that uh, I got to get uh, exposure to and, and help out. And so, so then you know, FPNA we needed a, a good uh, enterprise system, so we did go with Adaptive, uh, which is owned by Workday today. Uh, and uh, it's one where I'm not, you know, it's one I'll evaluate again if it's the right tool or not. But there's new tools out there now. But that was the tool that was, a, you know, well accepted as an FPNA tool to produce your forecast. Uh, the version controls are robust, and that's what I think was most important, right? And and you know, a lot of that will inform our, you know, our variance reporting. And so making sure that it was all in order. And so that was you know, all the the back end stuff and the front end, you know, going back to the co company deck and then also starting to forecast 
what a Wall Street model looks like, right? And what is what does a beat and raise look like with our internal forecasts? So that's where FPNA really was. Obviously, that's uh, we're at the, the center of that uh, because we had to build that internal reporting. I'm the guy, you know, I had a, you know, a great person who was doing the, a lot of the modeling. I was the guy talking to all the stakeholders and really making sure we got this three-year view down uh, as strong as possible from an internal perspective. Then so we could then come back and create what a, a beat and raise model could look like. Because we want to make sure that, hey, do we have this right uh, runway uh, to, do, to do that, right, and, 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 and be successful. And so we... You know, we, FP&A like was uh, we had to make sure we get that internal forecast rock solid, right? And that's your that's your bread and butter FPA. It doesn't matter if you're going public or not. You want to be as accurate as possible, but just held the stakes were higher uh, to ensure that you're you you were not you know uh, you had the best middle of the road forecast, so you could then build that Wall Street model, help the analysts build the Wall Street model, right? Uh, and then uh, yeah, we weren't just involved in all the nooks and crannies of uh, what needed what was needed for the S one drafting. Uh, I got to sit in those S1 drafting sessions, got to sit in the banking bake-off sessions. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and I just, I was there flying the wall, but just then absorbing and then regurgitating that, making sure I'm then taking that back to how we think about our, our forecasting and uh, what's important to investors, right? So that really changed orientation of how I thought about some things uh, where what is important to investors is obviously going to, what's going to help our share price and what can I do to help optimize our PNL uh, via that. Some of it, it's business operations. Some of it, honestly, is, is slate of hand accounting that's still within gas standards. Uh, it, it just changed that mentality, uh, it, you know, and, and making sure our PNL is is optimized for what for the business, right? And you start thinking about things like GNA allocations. For example, in the early days, you put stuff into GNA, you don't think about it, right? And you, know, you put all your rent, your rent into GNA, but yeah, once you go to like spending more on GNA is not going to win you a share price. Uh, and so the real, yeah, you're, you should be allocating that, right? You should be allocating it based on usage. Uh, and what are other things that are based more like you based on usage by folks and you could allocate by by headcount, right? Those are the things that start happening during that run up, run up to the IPO, right? And I enjoyed that. That that actually spoke to my strengths where I'm, it's a, it's a like, almost like this, it's a puzzle out there. And how do you build that puzzle in the best way possible. So that really uh, galvanized me during that time is like, how do we build, uh, how do we deliver a PNL that's going to actually, uh, you know, uh, show, you know, uh, what the, the investors want to see, right? Uh, it, you know, so it's, yeah, so I know I covered a lot there, but in a nutshell, if you are an FPNA team that is very proactive in the business, you, you're going to be everywhere in the IPO process, not just that front end forecasting, but you, you might be involved in the systems stuff. You might also help, again, help spearhead the tracking of the different workflows uh, and you're working on accounting to educate them. Uh, so it was a, it was an interesting uh, experience to say the least. Uh, and, you know, I'm proud of where, you know, the, the company's success, uh, you know, we, we had a good debut. This is before the, the cloud craziness. And so uh, it was a you know, muted debut, but the company is doing tremendously. And you know, I look back fondly that you know, I was able to help uh, that, that foundation building for, for where it is today. Makes a ton of sense. Um, whenever I look at financial planning for a software company, it always feels like the expense side is relatively easier to forecast mm -hmm. compared to the revenue side. Yes. 
especially when you think about you know getting a revenue forecast from your sales team which at times could be super like motivated to put a very high number or on other times can kind of sandbag it yeah how as a fpna lead you take that into account but then of course put your view on top of it and come up with a forecast which would have the least kind of margin of error or the tracking error if you will compared to the actuals that might end up happening yeah absolutely i mean this is you know software revenue forecasting is a challenge right because i think we alluded to earlier right it's like you're an evolving space and the demand is you know is dynamic uh so for me the classic things in in sales software is there's a capacity component, right? And so if you're not if you're not want to hire X Y Z, right? There's a productivity that's you have history on, and you can do some trend analysis too. But productivity after a while per rep uh, starts becoming pretty standard, right? So by the time uh, my you know, my late my tenure in MongoDB, you have a good beat on your productivity. Uh, so that so that becomes more of a science actually. So like. Here, where do you guys think uh, your pipeline is showing that we need to hire? Let's bring the hires in. And then my team is then calculating our expected bookings. And then you go into the CRO conversations, right? You want the CRO to be like, hey, this makes sense or not. Because the CRO, you you have trust that they are thinking about this holistically, not going to sandbag. But we're so we're building up something that is come, working with RevOps, go to CRO, you have those conversations. I'm still looking at independently the pipeline. And I look at historical pipeline, you know, uh, top of the funnel to close and those dynamics, right? So you, because you want to make sure you have a healthy pipeline, you have the capacity to deliver it. And then the X factor is like, hey, the execution from the sales <laughs> to close these things. And that's where you like, you kind of have to put a, a certain amount of pressure on the on the org. So you, you kind of create some choke points over where like, Hey, you want to hire that many people? This is what I expect. Right. And, and, and you, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of sausage making. And then, you know, it's, it's something that's uh, it just makes sense, right. To, to get, to triangulate. Right. And so in Alcura, you know, it's, it's a challenge because it's early days and uh, you know, where it's a, the market is growing as we speak, right. It's, it's, it's real time growth. And so that this is all, again, all about like the art of what's possible. And so I'm looking at the pipeline I'm looking at like our current capacity. What what do we think the so now we don't have enough historical trending on productive capacity. What do we think the productive capacity is? And then there's a push and pull. And for me, I get the confidence because like it, with the pipeline, uh, we have the capacity. And then you know, hearing now right now we have really large ticket lands and expand. Uh, hearing the, the the stories of what's going on in each of these opportunities, the big ones, and giving me the confidence it's it's happening. Right. And then you, you kind of build it back into a, a, a revenue forecast. Uh, but it's it's tough in the early days. Right. But once you get some of the history in, it, it, it gets easier, to be honest. Right. Uh, the consumption piece is where it gets now tricky. Right. Because Mongo, we went through this transformation from all ratable licenses to this consumption component that adds a permutation. Right. But we still use that productive capacity as part of it because they're still in charge of selling X amount of dollars, but now it's coming in a, in a different way. But this is where I do think the business analytics and FP&A functions need to work more and with the sales folks and help them see what's going on under the hood. So that is actually a big thing that's on my mind right now is consumption analytics. And we do think there's some billing, the billing tool that we're potentially going to bring in, uh, 
is going to help us with analytics uh, to help our salespeople understand how our customers are using it. So then they could forecast uh, the business uh, based on the usage. Uh, but it still will plug back to like, what's the pipeline? And I'm going to hold them accountable to put, put a pin on the number uh, as best as possible as they go along the opportunity, right? So you need the hygiene, the re you know, real rigor on forecast updating uh, with, your, with your opportunities, because uh, that's the only way we're going to then have accurate forecast, right? Because uh, I, I need folks who are out there uh, meeting these customers to gauge uh, with every meeting what the latest potential size of this opportunity is. And, and then you're, and you got you to gotta bring it in. And so, yeah, I'm not sure. There's no, no, no silver bullet, but, uh, but there is, you know, there's a little bit of science and, uh, and art to this. All right. Uh, why don't we move to, with all the experience that you've had and all the discussions that we have just had, how would you characterize or define rather uh, the role of a modern CFO? What's in your view is a modern CFO? Yeah, obviously you want that. You, you're the guy who knows numbers and you have the foundation uh, of uh, understanding how P&L and everything works. But now you are that strategic business partner with that acumen, right? And so that's why I want, I, I'm at the seat of the table in leadership where I have, I'm going to talk strategy. I'll talk through investments that I think make sense. I, I'm going to be not shy about saying this is what I'm seeing and what I think could be helpful, right? And and sometimes maybe people could even forget that I'm a, the finance leader, right? I, I think that's like, the, uh, I think the modern CFO is somebody who is desired from stakeholders to be a thought partner, right? Because they, they view them as like that independent thought partner who has obviously privy to all the numbers and uh, you know, and it's a safe space to, to, to chat, but I'm going to be a guy who's going to have be empathetic and also hold you accountable. Right. So that's what I pride myself on. I think the modern CFO needs to have those two aspects to them because, and uh, that has served me well uh, because I, un I go to great lengths to understand that part of the business of a, a, a leader and the folks underneath the leader, uh, because I love meeting folks throughout an organization, uh, uh, regardless of where they sit and uh, being then understanding the business, being empathizing with their, with their challenges, uh, but then helping inform them about the bigger picture. Right. And so I think it's up to that modern CFO to uh, deliver uh, the company's strategy in a way that's digestible for each, each of the leaders. And, and then, you know, we're all rolling towards the same goal. And I'm going to help you make some tough decisions, but there are going to be some tough decisions, right? And uh, I'm going to use my finance acumen to, to get there, but uh, and that's you know obviously that's respected. And but I also want to be one who's going to be also be an ally for you if you I do think your investment is going to be the right one. So uh, so that I've I'm that I've been person who will actually ask to spend more sometimes, uh, right? And uh, that's, I think, uh, the strategic CFO has to do that, right? Because they, they have to put, uh, be able to put a stake in the ground and say, hey, this is something we have to do because of X, Y, Z. And uh, I don't think that was really something that happened, you know, in the past. It's having, it's having much, much uh, more frequency when I meet other folks, uh, other heads of finances. Uh, but like, yeah, having that real seat on the table is going to be earned through that empathy and accountability. All right, makes a ton of sense. Why don't we now um, talk about your first 90 days at Alkira? Um, usually I really like to pick 
the guests mind on the first 90 or 100 days that they would advise a new CFO. But as you have just gone through that journey, I would really maybe like to uh, turn it around and talk about your actual 90 days. What have you done? How have you approached these 90 days? And now that you stand here, whatever you had in mind on day one in terms of whatever you wanted to do in the next three months, have you been able to do that? Yeah, so the, the first 90 days, the first thing was a listening tour, right? I wanted to meet all the stakeholders, understand their part of the business, and you know, ask questions that will help me get more educated, right? Because I don't want to be somebody coming in hot and saying, hey, this is a playbook that I'm going to run, right? It's, it's, it's definitely not the approach I want to take. Uh, I want to understand the, you know, the challenges and where I could be potentially helpful. And if, you know, I, I start sharing anecdotes uh, if it made sense. And that was really the first few weeks. And But we had a board meeting uh, one month into my tenure. So uh, one of the mandates was to actually recast uh, kind of some of our SaaS metrics. Uh, so there was SaaS metrics that weren't being produced or maybe not produced uh, in, in the right manner. And so that was a, a retrench. So for me, part of the to-do list was to do a deep dive on all, all the data we have and turning that into insights. And uh, that allowed me to learn the business. So th that was a forcing function for me uh, to, to, to learn the, the, the numbers as, as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, the, bo the board meeting went well because I got to really deliver the, you know, the who's who of metrics, right? Here's our LTV CAC, our net revenue retention, our magic number, burn multiple. These are things they haven't seen. And that was, it was great for me, right? I, so I just, it was, yeah, you know, obviously, you know, one month in board meeting, but uh, it was an opportunity for me to turbocharge learning the metrics uh, and, and yeah, help cast a light on that things are, you know, some, going well, right? We are showing a land expand business. And and so that was, a, that was a check for me uh, that I got, you know, I was able to uh, build a new baseline when it comes to the, the metrics that we're, we're re reviewing. And then uh, the goal was to get a, then the first draft of uh, FY24, we're in the calendar year, fiscal year uh, plan. And that was already diving in with the folks on, on uh, what they're thinking for next year. And what I started doing is benchmarking our business to uh, uh, businesses our size. Uh, there's some good research out there put by, out by VCs that I started looking at and started crafting a game plan on what does our uh, 24 need to look like and, and beyond, but really 24. And can we meet that moment bottoms up, right? And so that, and so having those conversations, I think people really appreciate that. Uh, and my goal was also to meet folks throughout the organization. So I uh, encourage people to reach out to me and that, that allowed me to learn more about the business. So I've you know, I talked to some engineers and folks in, you know, in sales and, and hearing their pain points, right? And giving them feedback. Uh, yeah, I'm passionate about that, that go-to-market finance partnership. So I've been doing a lot of work with RevOps and, uh, and setting the, the groundwork there and what, how we think about uh, looking at things. And so, so yeah, yeah, it's it's been really fun, right? As uh, I'm excited because of the product market fit, and now it's all about the you know this is the you know the, the work that I'm willing to do because I want to build a great company, and so I'm learning having to learn the technical side of the business. So that's that was another part of the you know the checklist, right? Like get you know know the business well enough where I could actually at least talk about it with an investor, right? That was was another uh, to do. And I, yeah, I, th I think I'm there, right? I'm still learning because this is a, an evolving world when it comes to our product. We're, we're building more functionality into it. And what does that mean for 
you know, for companies who use our products, right? And so I'm trying to be smart on that and being giving the CEO more leverage uh, when it comes to investor conversations, uh, because you know he uh, he's got plenty to do, and uh, I want to be an asset there. And so, so I think that's been successful as well, right? In terms of getting the understanding the business enough to uh, combine that with the understanding the numbers and starting to tell that story that is going to get you know uh, interest peaked, right? And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, overall though, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm going to continue that progress. Uh, we're going to close out the 2024 planning, uh, very shortly. And I'm very excited to then really, uh, dive into the, you know, the underlying drivers and how we could, uh, optimize both on the revenue and on the cost side. So, so laying down the seeds for that, uh, in the first 90 days was, was another thing that I was looking to do. Very cool. How do you define a successful career? Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, you know you have your classic uh, uh, things or your your yeah, your title and your and how much money you make, but that's yeah, uh, I'm very happy in that regards. But it's one where I want to feel good that I help build great companies. I think this is the theme I've already set here, but uh, it's such a great feeling, and I'm I'm grateful I've been in the position to be building companies that I get no one's heard of when you join them, and now they're, and they're now uh, household names in the tech world, right? And it's such a great feeling to be to contribute to that, and you know, I you you know, you say, hey, we're we're the unsung heroes, and yeah, I think finance and FP&A folks and uh, are unsung because there's stuff that we do that helps bring that inflection curve, right? And and I don't need to have the you know, like, hey, we we keep it X Y Z and it's out in the world, but I it's a personal satisfaction, right, uh, that I'm able to help with that inflection point because. Product market fit only gets you so far, right? And so for me, being that finance leader who helps galvanize and and does my part to build that great company, uh, is is got me to a great place where I'll be, you know, I'll look back uh, and say, hey, I'm I'm very happy I went on this path, right? Uh, and uh, while it's great to be, you know, say I banking and consulting, those are great careers, but helping build. I think I'm, I'm glad I've, I've been on this journey. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's my, my definition, but, uh, yeah. What would you advise your uh, younger self when you were just graduating with all this knowledge? Yeah. What, what would you say? I mean, I was a little bit more impatient, uh, in the early days. So I did jump around jobs a little bit quicker than maybe I, what I should have. And I would have told myself, Hey, yeah, like the more you, Put your effort in and learn more the better your future self is gonna be uh yeah it still came to a good place but i was looking back i was like why was i so just like itching to do something different right and and not you know really diving in and going deep all right so that'd be one of the things that like, hey, more patience uh yeah yeah go deeper uh and and uh, you know, that is better for you right so somebody so the older self saying hey it's okay to be uh slogging a little bit right now because you're you know, you're learning good things uh and so that, that that'd be one thing uh yeah i think i think that's the main thing cfo job is certainly a very challenging one what keeps you going keeps me going i like different challenges right so, so so that's why i'm naturally so the modern cfo that i explained has a different challenges and new permutations uh i'm not somebody who just likes to repeat rinse and repeat and so that keeps me going because I, there's a new challenge that pops up especially in this stage of growth right where you're, you're trying to build that you know that uh foundation and whether it be systems and analytics and and you're hitting the ground running in so many aspects. So that 
yeah, I still have the energy for it. So hopefully, <laughs> let's see how much how much more I have in me. But I still have that desire to you know work on different challenges every day. And yeah, being a CFO at a growing tech company, it, you have your endless amount of challenges. Makes sense. Why don't we now move to our lightning round? That's kind of the last segment of the podcast. Um, should be fun. All it requires is me asking some quick questions and you giving impromptu answers. You ready? Okay. Sure. All right. Let's start with easier ones. Sweet or savory? Uh, savory. Books or podcasts? Uh, I'd go books. Thinker or doer? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I'd like to say I'm 50-50, but I'll lean a little bit more thinker maybe uh, these days, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Introvert or extrovert? Uh, mostly introverted. Scotch or whiskey? Uh, we go with the whiskey there. How does someone impress you? So, so somebody who impresses me is somebody who thinks about challenges holistically. So they see both sides of of, a, of an issue or a challenge. And you know, I do like having conversations with folks who thinks thinks differently and sees it from a different side. So that's something that I, I always enjoy uh, seeing when I meet somebody. What is your one hidden talent? talent. Uh, I could sing good karaoke. All right. <laughs> If you can be CFO of any company for a day, which company would you choose? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think I've even had a thought uh, around this, but it would, it would actually be in the, probably in the sports arena because I just am a bit in, in American sports. So I'd say, let's see, I'd probably be a CFO for uh, the New York Mets. <laughs> How about that? All right. Ideal place to retire. Interesting. Yeah. One area that I've been actually thinking about was uh, south of Spain. I really loved it when I joined, uh, visited about 10 years ago. And I told my wife that, hey, this could be an area that I wouldn't mind at least living part of the year. All right. If you could teleport yourself right now, where would you go and why? I think it would be Dhaka, uh, Bangladesh, right? Because I haven't been there in quite a while. Uh, it's been almost, uh, quite frankly, almost 20 years, actually. And, I've, and so yeah, I still have cousins and other family there. Uh, so it'd be nice to just quickly teleport because it's, it's a long, long trip. Uh, and yeah, get to say hi. And then one of the things I've been actually doing recently is following the the, the burgeoning tech ecosystem there, right? So I've met some founders uh, over you know Zoom and calls, and would love to kind of meet some of these folks in person and help advise. And so I could do that quickly and come back. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, number one item on your bucket list right now. Uh, one thing on my bucket list is actually I would like to open an eatery in the honor of my mom. My mom unfortunately passed from cancer about four years ago. And uh, there are some uh, recipes I actually took from her even before she was sick uh, because I was like, hey, maybe you should open something one day. And that is on my bucket list to actually just try something out. Right. And uh, we'll see when, when we get that done. But I'm very determined that we're going to do something uh, that that opens uh, opened up in our honor. Very cool. If you could uninvent something, what would it be? <laughs> uninvent something. Wow. Uh, whew. This is. I'm a, I'm a fan of my progress, right? In, in tech, <laughs> but oh man. Uninvent. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm stumped, I'll be honest. <laughs> no worries. Uh, who is your role model, personally or professionally, anyone that you have been inspired by? Sure. I mean, I mean I, the first place is my dad, right? You know, he was one of the first, uh, after Bangladesh, you know, 
went through a, a civil war. He was in one of the first classes, dental classes in, in, in Bangladesh. And, you know, he decided, you know, he wanted to uh, have a family in, in more stable conditions. And he came out here in the country and he built his way to, uh, you know, a dental practice in the South Bronx in, in the early 80s. South Bronx and at that time there was no one uh, Native American wanted to be a dentist in that uh, neighborhood, right? And uh, you know I'm proud of the fact that he built a, a 30 year plus practice, and you know I think it's uh, you know, shows the American dream. But he worked his butt off, right, to to get you know make it uh, you know a good uh, upbringing for us. And so for me, you know something I, I you know look with pride that he was able to accomplish that and uh, allow for you know my my successes. Very cool. The penultimate question. One thing that can make you 10x more productive. <laughs> uh, well, obviously AI is a hot thing, but uh, for for me, I would just love having uh, basically a junior analyst at uh, at my disposal at any time, and they're answering like your questions that are you know hidden in the data, right? <laughs> so uh, because if I could just get real time insights based on the data that's already there, uh, that would just make my life. Whole lot easier right because uh the, then you could do the proactive uh you know uh, partnership with folks because you have the you know the, the information at your fingertips makes sense the last one describe yourself in three words i say uh curious uh kind and intelligent <laughs> Very cool. Well, Rakeeb, this has been an amazing show. Thank you so much for taking all this time. Um, really appreciate having you on. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on YouTube, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or our website, www strategyoffinance.com. Your comments will make us better. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and share the word in your network so other people in the finance community can also benefit. Be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal and remember to learn, grow, and inspire. <laughs>